seated. Uh, please open with me now in God's Word to the book of Galatians, the New Testament book of Galatians. We come this morning to uh, chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15. Uh, if you're using one of the pew Bibles that's in front of you, the black pew Bibles, uh, this is found on page uh, 975 in your pew Bibles. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15. Let's hear God's uh, holy word. Uh, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It sends this reading uh, in God's word. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Uh, Lord, this is your word. It is full of truth that we need to hear. We pray that you would be pleased this morning to speak to us by your Spirit, through your holy word. Change us, we pray, Lord. Might the things that we hear not merely be good things for our head, but vital things for our souls. Uh, We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, what we think about doctrine affects the way that we live. This is one of the reasons why it's so important that we study biblical uh, doctrine. Doctrine does matter. What we believe to be true impacts the way that we live. And that's what Paul is concerned about in this passage. Galatians has been a rather doctrinal book so far, hasn't it? Uh, It's talked to us a lot about uh, truth, the truth of God's grace the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of how a sinner is saved. But that truth is so, it impacts then the way that we live. And really, as we get into these uh, remaining a chapter and a half of the book of Galatians, that increasingly is going to be uh, Paul's point. How does this truth, gospel truth, impact the kind of life that we live on a daily uh, basis? In particular here, he is going to draw an inference from truth that he has been preaching. He has been speaking to us about the truth of Christian freedom. What it means, as though saved by Jesus Christ, that we are now freed. And the question now is, if we are those who have been freed through Jesus Christ, what does that mean for how we live? It's an inference that's going to be drawn. And what I want to do here is to kind of follow Paul's line of thinking in these verses by 
really looking at this inference in two different ways. First of all, we're going to see a dangerous inference that we must reject. And then secondly, uh, we are going to see a proper inference that we must live by. And then lastly, just very quickly in conclusion today, uh, we are going to consider uh, uh, the results of each inference. So there's, first of all, a dangerous inference that we must reject. Secondly, a proper inference that we must live by. And then lastly, the results of each, okay? That's where we're headed today. Well, first of all, let's see how uh, this Christian doctrine of freedom impacts our living by, first of all, seeing a dangerous inference that we must reject. And we're going to see this in verse 13. You know, Paul's great concern in this epistle so far has been to oppose who? To oppose, we've heard them time and again, right? The Judaizers. And the legalism of these Judaizers and the truth that Paul has asserted time and time again throughout the entire book of Galatians is that glorious gospel truth that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else added. Nothing else but Christ alone merits our acceptance with God. Salvation apart from my works. However, wherever this gospel of grace is proclaimed, there is then a danger of a certain false inference being drawn from it. And the inference is this. Well, if I am saved by God's grace, it doesn't matter how I live. I can do whatever I want. Right? We, actually, if you go through the book of Romans, uh, you see this same pattern. He, in the first part of Romans, defends the gospel of, of God's free grace in Christ. And then Romans 6 and verse 1 comes, and he says, Well, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's the same point, right? Well, if it's all by God's grace, how would I just do what I like? Paul's answer in Romans 6 was this, Meganoito, he says, by no means, by no means shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. And he is saying the same thing here. Look with me at verse 13. He says, you are called to freedom, brothers. That's the summary of everything that he's been preaching. Christian freedom, freedom from the curse of the law. You've been saved by God's grace alone through Christ. You are called to freedom only, here's the false inference, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't keep on sinning that grace may abound. That is a false inference. Now the language that he uses here is kind of interesting. Uh, he talks here about our freedom being an opportunity. Uh, it's actually, the, the Greek word here is a kind of military term uh, that would refer uh, to the starting point of an attack or kind of the base of your operations. Uh, the place from which you would launch an attack against an enemy. Uh, and, and so here he's saying, don't allow your freedom to be the base, the beginnings, the 
the, the place from which you begin then to, and here's the language, to, uh, or as an opportunity for the flesh. What does he mean here when he talks about the flesh? Well, uh, sometimes if you hear flesh, you think, well, the, the contrast is between flesh and spirit. So flesh refers to our bodies. Well, if you're thinking that, you're thinking about it in a little bit the wrong way. The word flesh here is a word that is referring to our sinful nature, both body and soul. And so, when we become a Christian, what happens is that uh, we are renewed in the inward man, in our hearts. And increasing. And when we are given a new nature at that point, a nature of holiness, and increasingly that old nature, the flesh, is more and more put to death as we now live unto God. And so the contrast between flesh and spirit is not so much our body versus our minds as it is our old nature, our old sin nature, versus that new nature which the Holy Spirit is creating in us. And so when he says, be careful that you don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he's saying, be careful that you aren't continuing to engage in those things which mark our old sin nature. Don't continue to bring to life those old remnants of your indwelling sin. What an important argument this is. Do you see the inference again? The picture is clear, just as an army might say, well, this base that we have near enemy territory is the perfect place where we can furnish ourselves with supplies and launch an attack against that enemy. So Paul is saying to us here, and the Holy Spirit saying to us through Paul, make sure that your freedom in Christ, the freedom of his gospel grace, then isn't misused as a place from which you begin simply to gratify your old sinful nature. Christian freedom ought not to lead to a life of continued sin. And you know, we aren't helped by our culture here, friends, because the message that we are told time and again in our culture is a message of freedom. It's your life. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do or how to live. And it's a message of freedom that is then tied to the selfish gratification of our sinful natures. Live as you want. Our culture has made idols out of self-expression and authenticity. Just be yourself. Do what pleases you. It's your life after all. That again is the language of a kind of freedom leading to sin. And it's something that you and I are tempted to uh, every day. We're tempted, dear friends, to continue, even as Christians, as new creatures in Christ, we are tempted to continue to gratify or indulge in that old uh, sinful nature. We do it with our words. When we get angry, or we get frustrated when we use foul language, or when we use words as a weapon to tear others down. 
not taking others at their best motives, but at their worst. Or becoming impatient with others, or muttering how, how all the time, how incompetent everybody else is. Well, dear friends, it, that is an indulgence of our sinful nature. We can do it as well when we gratify selfish, immoral, sexual desire. A glance at a woman with impure thoughts. Fantasizing about life with some other man. Objectifying a person that is made in God's image. Expressing discontent with the life that God has given me. Dear friends, these are a kind of gratification of, of, of the flesh that we ought not to indulge in. Similarly, with how we use our time. When we think that our time is, is mine to use how I want. Or when we fritter our time away with things that are not useful in, in Christ's kingdom. Dear friends, uh, this is a kind of, again, a gratification of, of the flesh. And he says, we ought not to think that our freedom in Christ then means that we can simply live however we want. And let me just give two kind of primary antidotes to this, to this way of thinking, to this false inference. And the first is this, you need, friends, to remember who it is that called you to this freedom. That it is God who did. Did you see this? Verse 13, how did you achieve freedom? For you were called to freedom. Brothers, well, who called you? God did, didn't he? How were you brought out of uh, that state of sin and darkness and brought into new life. Well, it wasn't anything that you did. It was rather God who called you out of darkness into light. It was His sovereign initiative. It was by His loving choice. It was by His gracious action that He broke our bondage uh, to sin. And if it is the Lord who broke that bondage to sin and freed us, are we not then bound to live for Him and for His glory? So you need to remember when you are tempted to use your freedom for the flesh to remember, no, I was set free by God. And so I belong to Him. It's God's sovereign grace that leads to my response of obedience. But then... Not only are you to remember who called you to freedom, that it was God, but secondly, you need to remember what you were freed from. And what were you freed from? You were freed from sin. You were freed from sin's terrible, eternal consequences. You were brought out of that terrible bondage to your own sinful nature. And so friends, if that's what you have been released from, don't go back into it. Sin enslaves. Sin is displeasing to God. Sin hurts ourselves and sin hurts others. And God freed you so that you don't don't that you don't need to any longer live in that kind of bondage. And so instead, live for the God who has freed you. So do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Secondly, let's now look at a, a proper inference. 
that you must live by, if that's the inference that you must reject, that God's grace leads to license, I can live how I want, what is the inference that you must embrace and seek to live by? Well, it is this, that our freedom in Christ leads to loving service. That's the, that's the inference that we live by. And you see that in verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather, what's the inference that we should follow? How should we use our freedom? In this way, he says, through love, serve one another. The Christian who has been freed from sin is then to use that freedom to serve others out of love. You know, the whole phrase sounds almost a little bit paradoxical, doesn't it? You have been freed to serve. The word serve is the same word for a slave. You've been freed for a slavery. <laughs> okay? Martin Luther picked up on this when he said, that the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And both are true. As Christians, we have been freed from sin in order to engage in a kind of willing servitude. A willing servitude to the God who freed us. A beautiful picture of this is actually found in our Old Testaments. We would have read it uh, several weeks ago in our Exodus readings, Exodus 21. We're given a certain law about slaves, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6. And uh, we're told that when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and then the seventh he shall go out free. But there's a provision, and the provision is this. That if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or their doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The slave is free to go, but he is also free to give himself to his master. And there's a very real sense in which it's the case for us. You and I, who have been freed from our sin, freed from those chains of bondage to Satan, we have been freed, but we have been freed in order to serve him. And there's a real sense in which, having wills that are changed, we now say, Lord, it is my very heart that I now offer to you. Sincerely, completely, I give myself to you now in a kind of willing servitude. I belong to you. Take me, as it were, take that all through my ear that I might be found to be yours uh, forever. And so we are to give ourselves in a kind of loving service to God. And he says this in verse 14. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, very interestingly, he, he just said, okay, we are freed in order to serve. And now, in this book in which time and again he has told us that we are 
no longer under the law for our justification. He now says you are freed in order that you might fulfill the law. And we want to say, wait a second here, Paul, you're blowing all of my categories here. Wait a second. I thought the law was bad. I thought we were freed from this. Well, let's listen carefully. Let's try to understand what Paul is saying because here so many people misunderstand. Let me just make a number of statements here, which, which I hope will clarify this. And the first is this. It is that you have to understand that Christ Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly, and he has freed us from the penalty of a broken law. That's been the point of Galatians. In our justification, our standing before God, Christ's perfect righteousness becomes our robe, and we are accounted righteous in him. Another statement is this. It is that Christ Jesus has set us free from many of the ceremonies, rituals, and cleanliness laws of the law of Moses, which were intended for a time to point forward to Jesus Christ. And so that's also a reason why Paul is so insistent in Galatians, we do not need circumcision. That was for the Old Covenant. It's not a requirement any longer for the, the people of God. And there were other rituals and sacrifices associated with the temple and cleanliness laws attached to the law of Moses which were intended to point us ahead to Jesus Christ. And so we are freed from those aspects of the Mosaic law. But let me make another statement, and here, this is so important. But God's moral law, which is found in the Ten Commandments and is expressed in numerous ways in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, provide the standard for the Christian's sanctification. That is, what it means to live a godly life. So we are freed from the law as a means of justifying ourselves. Christ has done it for us. But that same law, God's moral law, then provides for us the guide in how we respond to the God who has so saved us. It's a pattern of what God intends you and me to be. That's what the law is. And it's what the reformers helpfully called the third use of the law. The first use was to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. The second use was to provide a kind of guide for the civil law. The third use is this, is that it shows me, having been saved by God's grace, how to live the kind of life that the Lord wants me to live. The law is a guide for the spirit-empowered life of thankfulness to God. That's what it is for. And that's why he can say here in verse 14 that now to live a life that is freed by God is to live a life that is keeping this law in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This leads to, a, to an additional point about God's law. It is that God's moral law isn't just a negative list of things to, to avoid, though it includes that, right? There are some things we ought not to do as those who are holy to the Lord, 
But the law is also a positive description of what a godly character looks like that is formed by love. And so that's why the summary of the law of God, which, by the way, is found in the Old Testament and which our Lord Jesus Christ teaches and is then taught elsewhere in the New Testament, the same thing that we just repeated in the catechism earlier, the summary of that law is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, first four commandments, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the last six commandments. And so in other words, that that summary, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't replace the law of God, but rather it is the summary statement of what the law uh, of, of what the law shows us to do. The law teaches us how to love our neighbor. The law is fulfilled as we love our neighbor. They show us what the law is ultimately about. And so the law of God is a beautiful description of the kind of life that we are called to live. And so to live, and here's the fifth statement, to live in accordance with God's law, is then ultimately to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that not, shouldn't that not be the heart desire of each and every child of God? Oh Lord, having saved me, make me look more and more like my Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to be more like Him. So that's why Christian freedom leads to a desire to lovingly serve others. Did not our Lord Jesus come to lovingly serve others? Mark 9.45, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, he did not count equality with God. Why did he become incarnate? He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself, taking the form of a what? Of a servant. And ultimately became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you remember when our Lord Jesus Christ took his disciples And he tried to show them, this is the life that I have lived. The night before he was crucified, this is the life that I have lived. Now you do likewise. What was he doing to them? He was washing his disciples' feet. John chapter 13. Let me just read that quickly. John uh, uh, 13. He says, "Um, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. We ought to be those who, like him, washed others' feet. And of course, Christ's greatest act of service was what? Well, it was laying down his own life on Calvary's cross. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and did what? He gave himself, gave himself, body and soul for her on the cross of Calvary. So what does it mean to have a Christ-like character? It is to follow this law of love that we would desire to serve others with a loving heart, that we would give ourselves for the sake of 
of other peoples and, and so fulfill the law of God in that way that we would be those who are marked by Christian humility, Christian love, Christian service. We were saved unto this end, brothers and sisters. Well, very practically, what does this mean? Let's just try to open this up with some of our remaining time. What does it very practically mean to use our freedom not to gratify our sinful flesh, but rather to, in service or in, through love, serve one another? It does mean that we are to serve one another with our words. Words of gentleness. Words of kindness. Words that build others up and encourage them. Words that instruct others and that are patient with others. Do you use your tongue in that way? Do you know that God has given you the ability to speak and to communicate? And it's an extraordinary gift. Think about it. The animals can't speak like we can. He's given it to humankind, made in His image. To what end? that we should be a blessing unto others with the words that we speak and the words that we write in emails and texts and on social media and wherever we go. Let us, Lord, help me to use my words to serve others. Do we think of our words in that way? I made the application earlier to human sexuality, and this is also a way in which we serve others. When we don't objectify them, for our own selfish pleasure, but rather we honor one another, not having lustful thoughts or actions toward toward other people because they are made in the image of God. But rather do we seek in this area of our human sexuality even to serve others, to serve uh, the spouse that the Lord has given you or one day might give you by being devoted to them alone. It's a way that we serve others. We ought to lovingly serve others as well with our time. Do you know that your time is not your own? God's given you the hours that he's given you in in your life. And we need some of them for rest. We need to be rejuvenated, yes. Do you know that the Lord has given you the hours of the day that he's given you in order that you might serve others lovingly? with that time? Do you have time for others? Do you view it not as your own to spend on your own passions, your own desires, but as time that you are willing to spend with others because they, they count? It's, it's you know, and, and even, I know some of us can be by nature more introverted, <laughs> and, and we find it difficult to be around others, but even as introverted people, can we find ways to serve others? To do things that bless other people. To think, my time is not my own, but rather it is for the good of others. Just last night in our family worship, we read a passage that really just kind of stuck with me. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. We're told there that an argument was arising among Jesus' disciples as to who was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a little child and put him by his side. A child whom the world probably thought unimportant, not worthy of their time or attention or effort. And Jesus says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so even to spend our time, as it were, getting to know a child, investing in their lives, one whom the world might deem unimportant, is valuable in the Lord's sight. It matters to him. Our time is to be spent in service to other people. Let's apply this further. Young people, some of you, or maybe teenagers, or you're a little younger than that, or a little bit older than that, what do you want to do with your lives? What's your ambition? What's your, what's your great goal, your great aim? The world tells you your great aim ought to be to make a lot of money, perhaps, to be able to live a kind of life of leisure that uh, some uh, dream about. Do you know what the Lord says? Your life is to be lived for. Your life is to be lived to glorify Him and to serve other people. That ought to be the great ambition of your life. Lord, make my years years of service. And whatever the Lord calls you to do, some of you, He might call you, he might call you to be a lawyer someday. Well, why should I be a lawyer? Is it simply to make a lot for myself? No, it's so it's to help others navigate the world of law. We live in a world of order and of law, and, and how can I assist others for their, for their benefit? Or maybe the Lord's going to call you to be a nurse. Well, again, that's a way to care for other people in their distress. It's a way to serve others. Maybe the Lord will call you to be an electrician. Well, again, we... We do that to bless others. That's why the Lord's called us. And whatever things the Lord has called you into, realize it's for that end chiefly that I might be a servant to others for Christ's sake. That ought to be your ambition, your goal. Do you know that this way of loving service ought to also define the way that we view our families? Why has the Lord put you into the family that He's put you into? Well, he surrounded you with those people in particular that you might be a servant to them, a loving servant to them. Husbands, that you would be a blessing to your wife, the wife whom the Lord has given you. That you would serve her selflessly, sacrificially. She's not there to simply make your life easier but rather she is somebody whom the Lord has put into your life that you might bless and help on the way to heaven. Similarly, wives to your husbands, that you would serve them lovingly, even when they're difficult, but that the Lord would lovingly, that, that you would lovingly serve them. It, to your children, why, why those of you that are parents, or grandparents, why has the Lord given you children that you might live your life vicariously through them? <laughs> Maybe they'll get to do all the things that you didn't get to do. And I think that's the view of a lot of parents. Sort of a second chance for me or something to live my life how I want. No. We're called to serve them. Serve them lovingly. And that's what ought to inspire you as as. You do lots of the difficult tasks of parenthood. You change diapers and you do dishes and, and do laundry. Husbands, as you go out to work and you try to provide for, for a home, for, for, and you do all the things that you can as parents, why? That you might lovingly serve these children and lead them in the way of, of Christ. But children, do you know as well that you are called to be loving servants in your home? Why has the Lord given you brothers and sisters? 
to serve them lovingly? Do you think about them in that way, that, that you are to be a servant to your siblings? And we might even be tempted to laugh at that because it's so counter to the way that the world thinks, right? But it's true. If a young person comes to me and says, you know, I think the Lord's done a work of grace in my heart. I, I think I'm a Christian. You know, one of the first places that there's evidence that you're really a Christian is how you act in the home. How do you act towards your brothers and sisters? Is it in a Christ-like way? How do you act towards your parents? Do you respect them? Do you seek to obey them? But children, can I call you to a life of loving service? Because that's what the Lord calls you to. Yes, even of your, of your siblings. You see, this transforms the way that we view our families. But as well, this idea of loving service impacts the way that we view the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Here are people, here's a community of people that we are called to lay our lives down for. Regularly, humbly, even when we don't get much in return, we serve one another in the name of Christ. Why have we been set free? We have been set free so that we might Live a life of loving service to God. For it is that love which fulfills the law. But then let me lastly now say this. I want to say something about the results of each of these inferences. We've looked at an inference that we need to reject, that freedom leads to license and gratification of the flesh. We've looked at an inference that we must embrace, that freedom leads to a life of loving service. But now, lastly, the results of each one of these inferences. And we find this really in verse 15. He says this, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here he's actually drawing an inference. He's looking at that first inference. If you're going to live your life for the gratification of the flesh, you're going to turn into a kind of beastly animal. And that's the language that's being painted here. It's that of of ravenous wolves biting and devouring one another and ultimately consuming one another in their fight. And if we look out only for ourselves, it has that kind of impact on others. I was actually just yesterday, um, had to be out on the other side of Springfield for a couple of hours, and so I went to a Panera. I was working on my sermon in a Panera at a neighboring table where a few people, presumably friends, I think, of one another. But they were some, you know, you can't hear, help overhear some of the conversation. And it was just some of the most um, just kind of self-centered uh, uh, conversation I've ever heard, each one trying to best the other person, and not even in a kind of teasing, fun way, but in a way that they sincerely I mean, the one saying, I make more in a week than you'll make in five years on Social Security. And he wasn't teasing him about it. And the other guy says, prove it. And he brings over, and, and all this, and they're, they're exchanging documents and all of this kind of stuff. And you're, you're, you're sort of, now this is an illustration of exactly verse 15. They were the most miserable, grumpy people I've ever met in my entire life. And you want to say, with friends like this, who needs enemies? Right? 
But I think it's really an illustration of what we might do on a lower scale, friends, when we are selfishly seeking to gratify ourselves, we are actually consuming one another. We're tearing one another up to pieces and to shreds. And what good is that at all? What good is that at all? Instead, friends, if we live a life of loving service, what we have is the very opposite of verse 15. Instead of devouring one another, consuming one another, when we give ourselves to lovingly serve one another, what happens? The body of Christ is built up in a beautiful way. Do you see, this life is not just all about you. It's about Christ and His glory. And it's about His glory as it's seen in the church. And the Lord in His kindness has put you among the people of God that you might be an instrument used in building up His people until that day when she will appear as the glorious bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And someday, dear friends, we are going to be in glory with the whole redeemed church of Christ. And we're going to see these people that we have sought to love in this life, that we have sought to serve in this life, and they are going to be beautiful beyond compare. And we're going to bless our Lord that we got to have a part in their lives and they got to have a part in ours. And that under God in His mercy, He used us in some small ways perhaps to build up this body which is His. Isn't that the kind of life that you want to live? Isn't that how you want to spend your own days? Not not simply grasping for some piece of kind of personal significance and and, and trying to make your own way only for it to lead in frustration and despair and to make you bitter and angry at the end, but rather to spend all of your days, dear friends, seeking to build others up within the body to that day when we shall truly be with Him as the redeemed church forever and ever. And I have no doubt that even heaven itself, dear friends, even in heaven itself, we are in love going to be serving one another with a kind of purity of heart. Heaven is a world of love. And there we're going to experience it perfectly for all eternity. So let's do it now. Can we use our freedom not to gratify our flesh, but rather in love, through love, to serve one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for This word that you have given us this day, we do pray, Lord, that we would take these things to heart, that we would, uh, gracious God in heaven, not bite and devour one another and consume each other, that we would not misuse the freedom that we have in Christ to sin, but rather, Lord, that we would count ourselves servants, servants of you and servants of one another that we would live such lives of humble, loving service all the days of our lives until that time when you shall call us into your presence. Help us in this, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response to God's word, let's now uh, sing together. It's hymn number five hundred. 38, might this indeed be our prayer, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. 538.
of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.